1: And I'm really excited about the show today. Um, I've got an amazing guest, uh, Carlin Pipes. We're going to talk about the courage to change and the miracle of a do-over, which uh, is going to be uh, really fascinating, I assure you. But before I do introduce you to Carlin, uh, I want to say a big thank you to my guest last week. Uh, If you had the opportunity to listen to the show, uh, you'll know why um, I thought it was a fascinating interview as well, because uh, Mick Dawson was the first person along with his friend Chris Martin to row uh, paddle 7000 miles from uh, Japan to the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco 189 days uh, so we were talking about his experiences and the challenges that he he, he faced and how they overcame them uh, and, um, and and what you know, the links are to business and courage and strategy and that sort of thing. So if you haven't listened to that, do go back and listen to that interview with Nick Dawson. So our question today is, do you have the courage to change or, or to help other people to change? My guest today at 15, Carlin Pipes, was a junior national champion swimmer, and she seemed really destined for greatness. Yet that same year, however, she slipped into a dark pattern of alcohol abuse And despite having amazing athletic skills, her life was a a complete free fall, she says, and she hit rock bottom at the age of 31. But it was then that she found the courage and the strength and the resilience to turn her life around by returning to the one thing that had created both the pain and the pleasure in in her life, and that was the water. Now, today, incredibly, Carly is one of the most accomplished competitive swimmers in the world with over 220 uh, world records. Uh, 332 US Masters national records, and in 2012 was voted as one of the top 10 master swimmers of all time by Swimming Magazine, well, World Magazine. Many of her records stand the test of time spanning 25 years over five age groups, and she really found the courage to change, and as she described it, as a result of a miraculous do-over. In 2015, she was inducted into the prestigious International Swimming Hall of Fame. So today we're going to talk about her life experience, we're going to discuss how you can build or help others to develop the courage, strength and the resilience to change. So a huge welcome today to my guest, Colin Pipes.
2: Aloha, Chris. Good morning. Hello. Hello. Aloha. And i
1: uh, absolutely thrilled you're, you're speaking to us from beautiful Hawaii, Hawaii I believe.
2: Yes, I live in Kona, Hawaii, which is where the uh, Ironman World Championships just occurred, just chips occurred just a few days ago or a few weeks ago. Sorry about that. And uh, so, yeah, it's beautiful here. Come for a visit.
1: I'd absolutely love to. I'm looking out of my window at the moment. It's winter here in the United Kingdom and it's pitch black and cold. Mm -hmm. So um, can I come tomorrow? Would that be okay? (laughs)
2: <laughs> I think, you know what, actually, you can get to Hawaii in one day. It will start out a very long day, but you can start out at London Heathrow at about 8 a.m. in the morning and you'll be here by about 10 o'clock tonight. But uh, it's about 17 hours of flying, but worth it because at the end, it's Hawaii.
1: Well, absolutely. And what's it, I mean, what's it like, like living there? I think of, I still think of Magnum PI and things like that. TV show. <laughs> <laughs> I think of it
2: There are five islands, and the main island is Oahu, and people often get confused that the big island is Oahu. But no, we're actually the largest island of the Hawaiian chain, but it also means that we're the newest island. And so we are the volcano that has 11 of the 13 different climates. We have uh, volcanic eruptions occurring right now and uh, beautiful tall mountains and absolutely gorgeous water. So it, it really is paradise here and uh, if you want a uh, change of scenery or a change of climate, you can just go up or around, and and within minutes it just changes. And of course, there's always the water, which is teeming with tons of. I guess they're spotting our first whales right now, so it's whale season.
1: Wow, so, sounds amazing. I once met a a film director, and he, he made a he made a, a film about people who were uh, um, windsurfing around the uh, the volcanic uh, eruption going into the sea. You know, what like molten Lava (laughs) is incredible
2: (laughs) and also very dangerous because uh, you know when the lava hits the water it uh, basically aerates glass and so it creates a gaseous uh, glass laden cloud and if you inhale that you can die so (laughs) I don't recommend it if you want to view lava you do it from a distance and stay close of any of the cloud uh, the steam
1: so you've got you have safer places to go swimming
2: yeah, safer places to go swimming, but that's a that's a daredevil. Good for them. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, oh, sounds absolutely in- incredible. Um, were you were you brought up there, or if you just happened to to move there at some point?
2: I actually moved here from frigid, cold San Diego in 2004, and a lot often people will ask me what was the reason behind it, and a lot of that is explained in detail in my book, The Do-Over, but uh, really the biggest draw here was the beautiful water. I, growing up in San Diego, the water is, is nice, but it is kind of on the cold side. People don't really realize that. And so moving to Hawaii made open water swimming year-round quite possible and enjoyable. And that was really kind of the biggest draw. And also realizing that we could also, my ex-husband and I could also operate our business uh, from the middle of the most isolated place in the world, which is where I'm at right now. So yeah. come to the, you come to the middle of the ocean to learn how to swim better.
1: So you really, really designed your life uh, around your passion.
2: Yes, that's very true.
1: And so to, to tell us, you know, before that, you know, your, what was your life like growing up? You know, up to the age of fifteen, um, when we sort of mentioned that as being a, a turning point. What, you know, where where did you come from, and how did you get into swimming? And what happened to you?
2: Well, I was I was born in a small town called Lompoc, California, which is a little bit above Santa Barbara, uh, quite a cool place as well. Uh, tended to be foggy and cold. And when I was growing up, uh, one of my favorite things to do was to go to the indoor warm YMCA pool. And there I had my very first swimming lessons at age four. And I immediately took to the water because a it was warm and comforting. But I also truly uh, really excelled because I loved the feedback that I got from the instructors instructors. They were so encouraging and so supportive and I, I started swimming and, and wanting to improve very quickly. And the reason why it was also appealing to me besides the fact that I was warm was that at my home life was rather turbulent. My dad was a practicing alcoholic. Uh, we had five kids under the age of seven, and my mom was best described as in being survival mode. So those uh, swimming lessons to me were like a really pivotal part of my life because that's where I found the most accept- acceptance, both from the teachers and from the water. So I think that that, that was really my early, early beginnings as far as the swimming. And then um, I improved very quickly <laughs> And by the end of, by the time I was about eight years old, I was scoring more points than anybody else on my team, and and earning some very nice trophies for my uh, efforts. And um, the uh, the problem was is that we, at that time we moved to San Diego, and I realized that I was going to be leaving behind that comfortable, warm indoor pool. And when we moved to San Diego, I was switching to an outdoor 50 meter pool, which, uh, as you know, is a, quite a big difference. But uh, those early days in swimming were pretty important to me. Would you like to hear more? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So when I'm when we moved to San Diego, I was went from a big fish in a little pond to a very little fish in a big pond because the swimmers in San Diego were, were quite a bit better than me. But uh, I quickly improved in that arena as well. And that actually tended to be kind of a pattern until I was about age 12, where I kind of started at the bottom and scrambled my way to the top. And it always kind of seemed back then that I always had something to prove. Uh, Our home life had not improved. My dad, as an alcoholic, I remember going to a swim meet when I was maybe nine or 10 years old, and we were all enjoying lunch on the the patio area near the pool at a break. And my dad drove past the area that we were having lunch with my entire teammates. And as he got close to where we were sitting, he threw a beer can out the window, a Coors can of beer, and this can just rolled and rolled and rolled and foamed and rolled and ended up landing a few feet from me. And I just sat there in horror as all of my friends and teammates looked at me and looked at my dad and thought, wow, your dad's pretty messed up. Yeah. And so that cloud of alcoholism and uh, broken family, because there was eventually a divorce really weighed heavily on me. And so what I did was I just uh, took my, my uh, frustration and, needs not being met and i poured it into the pool and and worked harder and worked harder and worked harder and and got some really fantastic results we we switched to a new team when i was age 12 and this time it was coached by olympic gold medalist mike troy who won the 200 butterfly in the 1960 olympics and uh that up the ante even more where now i was once again down at the bottom of the pile and had to scramble my way to my the top but it also meant uh Two workouts a day, driving a half an hour each way to the pool. So that meant two hours in the car every single day, and uh, just the water was freezing. And I knew that if I didn't keep moving, I would, I would get so cold. So I think that's part of the reason why I would swim so fast is just to generate some <laughs> body heat. <laughs> <laughs> so life up until age 15 started out like I enjoyed swimming. I enjoyed racing. I loved how it made me feel. I loved the attention that I received. But at age 12, when we changed teams, you know, people don't realize this. At at some point in time, your 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 sport, your love of your playtime, turns into a job. And that's from age 12 to 15. That's what it had become was the pressure mounts. Now you're trying to qualify for certain meets and win titles. And, of course, the coaches are telling you that maybe you have the potential to go all the way. And that's the messages that I was hearing. But I also kind of wondered, was this really my dream or was it, you know, this deep desire to be accepted in, uh, you know, Approved of and winning, and the water was a great equalizer. Nobody seemed to mind uh, what kind of background you came from, or that your dad's a drunk, and that your mom's, you know, working two jobs. So, you know, there are a lot of factors there.
1: But you, um, I guess, you could have gone, you know, either way with that, with the because there's normalization of alcohol with your father at your home. But I guess you could have either, you know, been attracted towards that with the pressure or you could have been repelled by it and you know it, it appears that you were att- attracted towards it you know what happened
2: yeah <laughs> that's what's so funny and ironic at the same time is that uh, growing up looking at role models the one person in the world that I wanted to be least like was my dad mm. and then I became exactly like him and and that's what's so ironic is I I would look at him in disgust. I would want nothing to do with him as he struggled with his own demons. And only now do I have a greater appreciation for what he struggled through. But, but I think, you know, that first drink at age 15 was such a, a, a major pivotal year for me. I just won the Junior National Championships in the 400 medley, which that's that race that Michael Phelps hates to do. And for good reason, it's, it's a very challenging race where you have a hundred meters of butterfly, hundred meters of backstroke, hundred breaststroke, and then hundred meters of freestyle. And, and at any one point in time, you want to stop and you know, you can't. So you, you suffer. And that's the event that I wanted the junior nationals. And my coach is saying, well, you, you know, you could be going to the Olympics and all of that pressure, uh, those that first drink, that first buzz that I ever had, I actually stole two beers, went into a dark living room while there was a party going on and drank them down. And, and it's not lost on me. That was the Coors beer. It was the same beer my dad drank. But I remember this feeling just washing over me of just this, ah, and it was kind of like having an overfilled tire and somebody lets the pressure out. And mm-hmm. it was just like this, Pssst. And, and the pressure was relieved and and I just loved that feeling and I realized right then and there that I wanted to explore that feeling more and I wanted to uh, you know what what uh, sensation that feeling of acceptance that I was working so hard to find in the pool It was like now I want I want that feeling that comes in a bottle.
1: Yeah yeah so so this you described the age of 15 to 31 as you being, you know, I think kind of, kind of in the dark really, um, you know, what, what was life like then for that during that duration when you, you know, things, I guess you've got this, all this amazing um, athletic skill and potential and ability um, yet uh, you may be squandering some of that with the alcohol.
2: And that—that's exactly it. So it was a battle because once I uh, once I flipped the switch and wanted nothing really to do with swimming, I still had to continue to swim. Uh, my mom had invested quite a bit of money and time into my training. Uh, money was allocated to me that didn't go to my siblings, and so there was the pressure continued, and I. Uh, for the next uh, couple of years through high school, I would ditch practice, get caught, and I would you know, basically just kind of was just trying to break out and have a normal life, and that was really not possible. But I think the best way to describe my life was kind of like the angel and the devil on your shoulder, uh, and that persisted for years. So the angel on one side saying, okay, Carlin, you're going to have a new beginning Uh, you're going to rededicate yourself to swimming. And at this time, I'd also developed an eating disorder. I was a bulimic before they knew what a bulimic was. So I had this eating disorder that was a way of gaining control. And then the abuse of alcohol at that time was a way to lose control. So I had these two things playing off each other. And, And then in my head... Knowing that I had the potential and talent to take this to a very high level, and yet knowing at the same time that I was squandering it and wasting it. And, and deep down, you know, Chris, I really just didn't think I deserved the talent that I possessed. That's the nut of it. I didn't think that I was deserving of what I was given. And that right there, you know, just weighed so heavy on my conscience. And the feelings of self-loathing, uh, low self-esteem, all stem from that. So on one hand, you have this girl that can get up on the blocks and race her heart out and demolish a field. And then on the other hand, deep down inside, I'm thinking, well, you know, if they knew me, people wouldn't like me at all. They would see that how ugly I am. And so that persisted all the way through until um, age 31. And it was a tough one, uh, tough one to battle for sure.
1: So, I mean, it, it is a very, very common, uh, quite, quite normal kind of feeling. is, you know, am I good enough? Uh,
2: yeah.
1: And uh, you know, I felt that be myself through my my sort of career, and realised that a lot of things I was striving for all the time was to prove that I was good enough. Um, didn't turn to alcohol, but uh, it 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 partly uh, demonstrated, you know, showed my success and how, why I got so far with my career. But actually, it became a time when. Um, it all seemed a bit too much, really. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I probably got and, to a point uh, that I dreamed of and actually wasn't so nice when I got there.
2: <laughs> and and <that's, laughs> that it was so true. I mean, uh, when it comes to addictions, it, there are so many out there and that are, I mean, it's almost like everybody in the world is addicted to something. And uh, obviously there are more dangerous ones than others and ones that can kill you uh, slowly or quickly. But yeah, the striving and the need to prove and the need to be seen—what's that all about, and where does that come from? And I, I'm still working on that right now.
1: And how do you? I think we probably, I think we've only got a minute or two left until uh, commercial break. But I just wonder, how do you view, you know, addictive personalities now?
2: Well, I actually back to my earlier statement. I think the entire world is addicted to something, and I think we need to have more compassion for people and instead of just saying, "Oh, just quit doing that." To understand that on every different on different levels, people need different things. Whether it's shopping and the high they get from buying something that that's a pleasure. Uh, pleasurable thing, or from eighty-hour work weeks. There's there's all kinds of very very acceptable addictions out there, and I think we just need to take it out of the dark and and acknowledge it and say, hey, we're all human and we're all uh, prone to this behavior. Let's just kind of call it what it is and figure out how to uh, to get out of it or to at least become aware that there is a problem. That's the first step is awareness.
1: That's that's really. You know, interesting thought because we have it's people out there who, you know, think, well, I don't have an addictive personality, but they're working, you know, 60, 70, hour weeks and not spending time with their family. Uh, so, you know, there's an addiction there to, to work or to, you know, achievement or so, you know, that's can be as destructive, can't it? As, uh, it,
2: it yeah. It's, it's really no different. I mean, helicopter parent, how about that? You're living through your kids and your only life is through their accomplishments. That's another one. Uh, there's obvious ones, sex, drugs, alcohol, but um, those are the ones that kind of get the limelight and the bad rap. The more socially acceptable ones, well, they are actually applauded and encouraged.
1: Absolutely well. We're going to go to commercial break now. After the commercial break, we're going to find out, um, you know, a, a bit about how you rediscovered water, the water, and you know what happened to you then, and uh, and some of these amazing achievements and uh, some of the lessons and learnings from those. So we'll be back with you again in just a couple of minutes. So do join us.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? Chris Cooper supports business leaders and high-potential individuals to achieve greater success in their businesses and careers. Support includes the opportunity to join a high-return group mentoring and mastermind program called the Achiever Program, one-to-one mentoring and coaching, You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back to Chris Cooper.
1: Hi, this is Chris Cooper. I'm with Colin Pipes and we're talking about the courage to change. And Carlin um, was explaining about her uh, background and we were talking about, you know, addictive personalities. I think we probably established that most of us have probably got an addictive personality of some um, kind or other, um, whether it be, you know, a, a addiction to work, or maybe even to exercise over exercise or a food or drink or whatever it is, but um, something we need to be mindful of. And I think uh, that opened up, you know, my thinking, actually, that it's much broader than just substance abuse but i'm interested now how you eventually uh, and you had some i had some low points in those years but how do you eventually you know, really really rediscover the water and uh, and how quickly did success start to materialize for you
2: oh thanks chris that's a that's a great question but um Uh, Some pretty low points would uh, really be not giving the credit deserved to how low I went. So uh, at the end of my drinking career, which it was a career because it became my job, uh, I was drinking a liter of vodka a day. Uh, I was passing out, not going to sleep. I, my body would alert me by the when it was time to drink another drink because um, my body had run too low. And uh, so I was passing out and coming to, and the cycle was repeating itself for about the last month of my drinking. And I, basically, I was just waiting to die. I knew the end was near. Uh, I remembered that, you know, when I first had that first drink... The, that feeling of pressure being released was one thing, but what it also what also alcohol did was it numbed the pain of needs not being met as a child, and um, I used that numbing for many many years. And when the alcohol stopped working, sleep. Was my next thing that could I could tune out, I could go hide from the world, and that's how I numbed myself. But at the very end of my drinking career, uh, my sleep patterns were so whacked up, it was uh, it was like a nightmare every time I went to sleep. So there was no escaping it, and I was just really tired. I wasn't about to take my own life, but I knew that the way I was going, that that it was coming, and it was very near. And gratefully, my mother intervened. And uh, she came to my house one day and I knew that I had to tell her that I was an alcoholic and I'd never breathed life into those words before. And and when I told her, I expected drama. I expected to be fried on the spot by a bolt of lightning because I was so bad. And my mom just calmly said, well, let's get you some help. And that's what we did. Uh, I went to a 10 day rehab and they call it a spin dry. And, and I, med- I medically detoxed, which was necessary, because my blood alcohol was 0. 0.52. At, uh, so, so, hey, like any overachiever, I didn't mess around when it came to anything. So 0. 0.52, that's uh, about six and a half times the legal limit in most countries. And I was very, very grateful to be alive. Gee. So, yeah, so I took it to the extreme.
1: So you, so you, uh, and were you able to kind of, you know, resign um, this this uh, career that you had in in with after those ten days? Was it that quick for you, or did you, you know, re- go into relapse at times and take a little while? Or was what what happened?
2: Well, at, about after three or four days, when the convulsions and the throwing up and and uh, the nightmare ended, and I started getting a little bit of a clear head, I really realized from the very. That very first few days that I was given a chance for a do-over, and that I could uh, rejoin the world again, and I wasn't sure how that was going to look like because it was—I had a pretty low standards at that point. Just breathing, I was happy enough uh, to do that. And uh, but I had, for the first time in a very, very long time, I had something that's really important for everybody, and that was hope. I had hope for the first time in as many years as I can remember. I didn't know what I was hoping for, but it had to have been better than where I'd left. And so that occurred pretty much within those first couple of days in rehab. And I just have been able to gratefully carry that, that feeling of hope throughout the rest of my life. And uh, I've been able to stay sober 24 years without a relapse. And uh, once again, that's for the grace of God, go I, because it could have gone the other way. And, um... Uh, it was, for me, the exercise was a big, important part of my recovery, mostly because I had so much time on my hand. I mean, when you're drinking around the clock like I was, you that's all consuming. You, buying it, getting it, getting it delivered, keeping it, passing out, all that stuff takes a lot of energy. So with the monkey off my back, I actually had quite a few times. So I started going to AA meetings and that was really cool. That took up time, but then I started exercising and the one place that I needed to return to, but I had the most hesitancy to do so was to the water so
1: mm. and has that has that exercise sort of compensated I mean you, you must you must do a, a huge amount of exercise to be able to achieve what you've achieved and I, I think it's obviously miraculous that your body's you know been in a, a state that's allowed you to after all of that but um, it's you know have you have you shifted that from did you shift your um, your personality from the addiction towards alcohol to uh, you know, exercise, which is more positive.
2: Wow, <laughs> you should be <laughs> my psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it didn't start out like that, I must say. Like nobody, no addiction ever starts out like, hey, I'm going to be an addict and I'm going to end up here one day. Uh, So when I got back in the water, I had to make peace with it because there were so many unfulfilled dreams and lost, wasted potential. But I made peace with the water and and the water accepted me back. It didn't yell at me. It didn't say, Carlin, you really screwed up your life. What a loser you are. It just said, come back in. I'll embrace you, I'll make you feel good again, and uh, let's just swim, and that's how I got back in the water, was just with this no expectations, and and man, the, I mean, swimming for me is intoxicating anyway, just the feel of the water, and especially in Hawaii, it's just like, it's like you're just getting, in you're touched all over, so for the first, uh, first couple of months, it was just really nice, easy, casual swimming, and I actually entered a meet, did quite well and broke a world record about (laughs) five months sober. (laughs) And I was like, you know, there was this little light bulb that went off in my head that said, wow, Carlin, okay, you've gotten your, health back, and you've gotten your brain back, um, and wow, you actually might still have some potential in swimming. But I treaded very lightly for the first couple of years and, and uh, really involved uh, myself in the process of it. But uh, eventually, as addictions do take hold, uh, breaking world records uh, became my, my next addiction, but it took me quite a while to figure that one out. <laughs> as a matter of as a matter of fact it didn't actually occur until michael phelps got his second dui and my co-writer tito morales was talking about the how the world accepts certain addictions and you know not saying that michael phelps is an alcoholic but uh he's had some issues with alcohol and and you can also look at his addictive tendency to break records like myself and when my writer said you know you might have a problem with breaking world records as a new addiction. And I was really, really defiant about it. And the moment I took a look at my reaction, I realized, oh my goodness, he is absolutely right. So I had to change the book. (laughs) 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 I I was like, you're right. So the the world record breaking addiction, you know, what's wrong with 200 world records? Nobody has that. Why not? You know, Um, I realized that, Well, what started out is to get healthy and to make peace with the water, eventually over time, left unchecked, became my new addiction. In other words, I would swim a race, I would beat all the girls in every single age group there was, even teenagers. And I'd look at the time and I would judge it and I'd go, oh my gosh, that is crap. Doesn't matter that I just won by four seconds and it's a world record. I would look at it and I would go, it's crap. And I realized the high was gone. And that I was kept going back to that same drug, looking for that same high in the form of world records, and it was gone. And I realized at that point in time, uh, and this is true of any addiction, awareness is the very first step. Mm-hmm. And and then the second step is getting seeking help, telling somebody about it. And in this case, it was my girlfriend. And I said, you know, my my friend Lori. I said, Lori. Who am I, if I'm not Carlin Pipe, stepping up on the blocks and breaking world records? Who is she? And that was where I had to really take a look back and realize, have I become just this persona this record-breaking machine and and who really is carlin when she's not in the limelight and who is she and and my girlfriend Lori just set me straight and she said carlin you're an amazing person whether you never break a world record again you're giving you're kind you share what you have freely with others and that's what makes you a world champion not how fast you swim in the pool and that really made a lot of sense to me
1: Uh, absolutely that's um (coughs) it's uh you know, how, the, how your friend articulated you know that's like uh you know measure the success of somebody and when eventually we we all leave this earth you know how people still think of us uh, as a human being um you know not to guess from the audience like a record-breaking machine really it's uh, how, how you leave people feeling i guess but which out of all of those in- incredible records and there's, there's so many i mean um do you have a, an achievement or two that you're most proud of
2: Well, you're going to laugh now because after the whole spiel about breaking records and stepping off the blocks, I did. I took time off. I'm 55 now, uh, recently married to an amazing Canadian named Christopher. And uh, this last year, going into a new age group, I decided I wanted to throw myself back into the pool again. And I'd been, the last world record I broke was age 50 uh, when I was in Italy at the world championship. So I had a, a pretty long break. I did some triathlon. I still trained. Like crazy, and enjoyed just doing the process without the end result being what I was looking for, and I loved it. And I and I taught, and I shared, and I traveled, and and enjoyed teaching uh, people my swimming technique, which is really awesome. So this year uh, in January, because when as soon as you age up, you can um, you can go break records even if you're not actually 55. So my husband and I. Christopher went to Holland, and we competed in the Dutch Open. And my very first event was the 100-meter backstroke. I'd entered with a very slow time because it was the only time I had. I won my heat and broke a world record by two seconds. And I have to tell you, it reminded me of the very first world record I broke when I was recently sober. I was over the moon and just so excited and surprised, and I carried that momentum through the whole meet. I ended up breaking five world records that meet. And swam some incredibly fast times with no pressure. And I just was just enjoying meeting the people and talking to the officials and sharing. And it just had this, like my heart right now is just swelling thinking about it. So I would have to say that, aside from the very first one, that this is really, really monumental because I've changed. At least I hope I have. (laughs) I had the the courage to change.
1: And Where does this where does it come from this ability that you have i mean is uh, some, you know is 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 it genetic in your family do you think um some, some yeah, of this, um,
2: i think i think it's part genetics and then you know you can't knock that need to prove as a fuel Mm -hmm. but it only lasts so long uh typically anger and and all those things that you see a lot of athletes do when they win something and they express anger uh like take that world i'm somebody it only goes so far so you really have to find the love of your sport and i do love my sport and and it's a lot of fun to do and plus i just i just love swimming i love and i love teaching so it's it's pretty neat to be there and it's in a good place
1: Excellent. It sounds like you also uh, do some speaking as well, don't you, now?
2: You- yes. Uh, the, having Finding the courage to change is really the nut of it. is It's easy to stay uh, where you are, and a lot of people don't want to change because they're comfortable where they're at, even though it could be painful. So finding the courage to change takes a leap of faith and not knowing what's going to happen next, but it can be so rewarding. In other words, you need to sometimes let go of something, First, before there's any hope of replacement for it, and then you go into a void, and in that void, you can really discover who you really are when you're not living up to maybe somebody else's expectations or or trying to prove.
1: That's a really good point to lead this section on. So after the break, we're going to come back and we're going to talk um, with you, Carlin about um, you know h- helping how we help people who are maybe going through these kinds of challenges. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, you know, what, what support we best give to them and what do we do if we notice these addictions in ourselves or in the workplace. So we'll do that after the break, so do join us again in just a couple of
3: minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Would you like to work personally with the host of this show to help realize your potential? You are tuned into the Business Elevation Show with your host, Chris Cooper. If you have a question or comment about our show, please direct your emails to chris at chriscooper.co.uk. That's chris at chriscooper.co.uk. Now back
1: to Chris Cooper. Hi, Colin, We were talking before the break about some of your, you know, your incredible achievements and some of those that you're most proud of. And I'm kind of intrigued now just to, you know, reflect. You missed that. You know, a good chunk of your life when you were drinking between fifteen and thirty-one. When I imagine you could have been a, a hugely successful Olympic athlete. So, how do you feel about that? So, reflecting on that time now.
2: Yeah, that's always the coulda, shoulda, woulda, and the you know the million-dollar question uh looking back now at the level of success that I achieved in my 30s back before you know like swimming greats like Dara Torres hadn't been around and you know she made like five Olympic teams into her 40s and medaled uh I you know I look back and I see that I had the potential but it wasn't really my dream and I think I've really put that one to bed Mm -hmm. but as a result I've had a much longer career. People that um, did swim into their 20s back then didn't really have opportunities to continue to swim and now there are so much more and I was actually able to parlay my swimming accomplishments into a free college education at the age of 35 which was huge so that was another part of my do-over I got to go back to university get paid to swim and win three events at nc2a's division two and set a record how about that (laughs) That's
1: that's a really good point though isn't it because so many swimmers must get to that age and they think you know I've got to retire now I'm I'm kind of on the scrap heap in some respects uh, because there were younger people coming through but actually what you've demonstrated is you've had a very lengthy career because you maybe didn't see that as uh, that time as being an issue.
2: Yeah, so I just, you know, I yeah. pickled myself for a while and, and, uh, you know, kept myself out of the pool. Oh, by the way, while I was drinking, I still, uh, I still trained, and here is the, how the crazy the alcoholic brain works. So I still wanted to swim, but I couldn't swim in a local pool. So I would be drunk as a skunk. I would walk down to the San Diego Bay where there are Navy ships and cargo ships crossing back and forth. I would check in at the local bar, and I would say, hey, if I'm not back from my swim in 45 minutes, send the Navy out looking for me. And drunk as a skunk, I would go navigate the waters of San Diego Bay by myself. And uh, luckily, I made it back every time. But, I mean, that was a perfectly acceptable thing to do in my alcoholic mind. So that really what makes you kind of, it's like when we're dealing with somebody with addiction, you don't realize that they're crazy is actually sounds very normal to them. It sounds like, you know, I was getting my need met. I was getting a, a swim in. But um, uh, back to your question regarding, um, you know, the longevity is my best times were done in my 40s. And I'm still relatively close to those things. So it's really amazing that I have been blessed to give, to have this, you know, this do over to go back and do it again. And the neat thing is, is master swimming uh, in Great Britain. You guys just hosted your national championships. I'm sure a couple thousand swimmers were uh, out there racing their heart out from the very um, first heat to the very last and all ages and all shapes and sizes and all speeds were out there doing their best. So swimming is a lifetime sport.
1: Yeah. And there's also there's a bigger picture here, isn't there? Because without your story and what happened to you during that time period, you know, you're now, you now kind of blessing the world with all these records, but with all of this, uh, this wisdom that you acquired from your experience, if you'd you you've been an Olympian... Uh, there are many Olympians out there. You, you'd have a different story to tell. You've got a more unique one, I think. And, and-
2: yeah, it's uh, but we, you know, as you know, Chris, we all have a story. Mine is mine is just one that's hopefully, you know, turned out. Uh, really well with uh, getting the help that I needed in recovery and having a sport that accepted me back and having that passion and that purpose that I've been able to tap into. And, and as we talked about a little earlier, I mean, one of the things is I love being a fast swimmer, but I, I'm actually an amazingly gifted teacher. And that is one of the gifts that my dad gave me. You know, I, for a long time, I thought the only thing that he gave me was the, his blue eyes, his dimples and the gene for alcoholism. And now I realize my dad was a musician and a brilliant musician and teacher, and he has passed that gene on to me. And I love, more than breaking records, I love sharing that information with other people and teaching people how to swim faster. And I have an endless pool here in Kona, Hawaii. And during Ironman, I get to see people from all over the world. I... uh, Gentleman by the name John Levison, who is the editor of Try Twenty Four Seven, came and took a lesson. That's a big, large publication in UK for triathlon, and he loved it. And he's like, "Carlin, in thirty minutes, you fix something that's been broken for years." And uh, that just gave me great pleasure. So, uh, you know, it's I'm really blessed. I'm, I found my passion. I found my purpose, and and that's what keeps me going.
1: And if you think, you know, all those those lessons that you uh, you mentioned the example of of John there, but do you see a common pattern of uh, with people trying to improve their swimming? Is there, you know, one or two key tips that you always give to people that makes the biggest difference? I have
2: th- <laughs> I have three big things, and, and it's very it goes against what a lot of people uh, recommend, so that's the hard part about swimming. There's so much information out there. Who do you believe? So I have a very simple paddling stroke. It's much like you'd canoe or kayak or stand-up paddle. Keep your boat board, whatever, relatively flat. Don't roll the boat. Just gently rock it. Reach wide. In other words, reach your hand out through the air and bring that paddle alongside the boat... Or the vessel and then get out before you get stuck. So picture somebody paddling a a stand-up paddleboard or or even just a surfboard, and you'll watch them intuitively paddle. It's the same thing. You don't want to roll. You don't want to finish your stroke because then you'll get stuck, and you want to enter your hands slightly wider than your shoulders, and then you pull alongside the board. And uh, that's very different. A lot of people are taught to roll like a log and push at the end, and I'm actually opposite that. But my endless pool is a scientific tool, and it tells me whether I'm going faster or slower or it's easier or harder. It's not a coach, it's science. So I've tested this thousands of times and it's worked every time. So those three things.
1: Fantastic. Great, great, uh, great advice there. Um, how, so uh, for anyone listening who's maybe going through, uh, you know, some kind of substance abuse at the moment or depression or, you know, they've got some, uh, some addiction what would you what, what that um, that they need some help with? What would you say to them? What would be your recommendations?
2: Well, Chris, that is just amazing, and and I do need to say that one of the beautiful things about coming out of the closet with my addiction is the ability to share my experience, strength, and hope with others. And what I've noticed is that. that that, you know, for a long time, AA Alcoholics Anonymous has been behind closed doors and people haven't talked about it. And there was a purpose out there because it was kind of like if you hold yourself up to a standard and then you drink again, people could say that that program doesn't work. Well, it works as hard as you work the program. That's the bottom line. But what's created now is there's all kinds of podcasts and magazines now about recovery. So it's like we've all come out of the closet and or we're talking about that. And not only are we talking about a Addictions, but we're also talking about mental health, and we're talking about all of these things people have kept a secret for a long time. And, and we have a saying that you're only as sick as your secrets. So that said, anybody that's out there struggling right now, it might be a secret to the world, but it's not a secret to you. You've known about it for a long time. And by drawing awareness to the fact that maybe you just can't go on anymore like this, the first thing you do is you got to realize, I've got a problem. The next thing is you need to get help. You can't do this alone. Um, it's got to be some support. And the reason that is is that once you voice your addiction to somebody else it's been given life and now there actually can be some movement and for most of us like i was stuck and stalled and swirling in this ugly eddy of of crap for so long that when i finally got into rehab there was finally movement and even though it was terrifying because i knew i was going to have to find the courage to change there was movement and at least i was going somewhere rather than going down the drain And so the last thing is, is after awareness and seeking help, you will be amazed at the angels that will come into your life to support your dream to get better. And that's where the magic happens. You get people around you that are just gravitate towards you and God puts them in your life and all of a sudden you're like going wow, I needed that person or I needed that situation and things start turning around. And then from that experience, you start getting that kernel of hope again, that you can have a better life, that there is something better for you to do. And that, you know, maybe if you're very, very, uh, diligent about this, that your purpose and your passion will be able to be mixed together. So that's what I would recommend if anybody's struggling, you know about it already, um, Put down the self-loathing, which is what really is the thing that helps us from getting help, prevents us from getting help, is that we hate ourselves so much the world can't even imagine that. But when you get around other people that feel the same way, it actually is comforting, and it can also be very humorous. So um, I get to laugh about some of the crazy things I did before with other people that are like-minded. So it's really a cool thing to do.
1: And what about those people, you know, maybe maybe family or friends, or that that really. Can't see that positive future, and you, you're, you're looking at them from the outside. They're not; they're showing resistance to any kind of change or intervention. Uh, how, how do you help those people,
2: or or can't you? Well, gratefully, there are programs out there, like Al, um, Alcoholics Anonymous has. Um, a sister or brother program called uh, Al-Anon, which is for anybody that's been affected by the disease of alcoholism. And so a support group, you could be a codependent because that's another addiction, codependency. Uh, and so these. you have your own program that you can go to, uh, your own support group where you will find like-minded people that have survived the same challenges you have. Because this is the thing about addictions. We have what's called Terminal uniqueness. We think that we're the only one in the world that has ever done something this bad or has ever experienced this or have ever felt that way. And then you walk into a room full of a bunch of people and they're all saying your story and you're realizing, wow, I'm not alone. So we're all messed up. Let's quit acting like we're all put together let's show our cracks and that's the way that we can have a chance for for those cracks to be healed um, and to made to be made stronger but one thing about the addict um, or the person in question it's an inside job uh, my mother-in-law told me this the other day it's a win from within. It's a win from within and nobody can want it for you. So the best thing I could do for anybody that is experiencing uh, somebody in their life that needs some help is you need to get your own help in the form that's best for you. And that's uh, joining a support group. And And I wish you well with that. It's not an easy road. It's detaching with love from those loved ones that are causing a lot of pain in your life. But that's really the only thing you can do.
1: So we're well, nearing the end of the interview. And uh, I'm just intrigued now, you know, what's next for you?
2: Well, what's next? Oh, (laughs) I would love to do a lot more uh, inspirational speaking and and, uh, not to tell people that they need to go do their own do-over. I just like to share my experience, Strength and Hope, with others, so that they might find places in their life that might need a little tweaking here and there, or just to to be inspired to follow their passion and and discover their purpose. And I'm sure it's going to be a huge adventure once they do. And and I know that uh, there's a lot of darkness in this world, and um, the only way to shed. Uh, to stop and darkness is to shed light on it and i've been blessed to be enlightened through this experience and to take away the dark corners of my life and it's possible for anybody so to shed some light to help people get a little bit happier and then encourage everybody to swim because it is a lifetime sport and even if you don't know how it's never too late
1: Uh, that Colin, that's a brilliant way to end the interview i've absolutely loved talking to you tonight and hearing your story and, you know, how you you kind of learned from that, turned it around, you know, have gone on and achieved some amazing things. But also, you know, what I really get a sense uh, from you today is that, you know, you're also a wonderful person who uh, is is bringing a lot of light to people in the the dark. So, yeah, I wish you all the very best. And, uh, you know, huge thank you for being on the show today. I hope you've enjoyed it.
2: Yeah, and thank you, Chris. Uh, when I come to uh, London to do some workshops, we'll go out and have a drink. You can have one that has alcohol in it, and I'll have the one with the fizzy water.
1: Uh, I'm happy happy to join you. I really don't don't. Uh, <laughs> be lovely to see you. I'll keep, I'll keep you company. Um, I'll take
2: you for a I'll take you for a swim.
1: Oh, that sounds great. Yes, you'd be. I might be a bit embarrassed. Um, a little bit like when. Uh, a member of Dire Straits asked me to send them uh, me playing the guitar, um, playing Comfortably <laughs> Numb. I was very embarrassed that he kind of forced me into doing that.
2: <laughs> that's, then, uh, a, that's a great story. I
1: never heard from him again after that. Um, <laughs> so if you want to find out more about Carlin, uh, go to carlinpipes.com. That's Carlin, K A R L Y N, pipes.com to find out how to book her, to speak at your next event, or for book signings, personal appearances panel discussions. Um, swim, sort of, swim lesson. Swim lessons, uh, you name it. Uh, Carlin <laughs> Carlin can do it. Eating disorders and codependency, uh, you name it. And I really recommend you also buy her fascinating autobiography, The Do-Over. Um, next week's show, I'm actually going to do a show myself. Um, I've just run a program, for uh, an MBA program um, around... Uh, strategic change and consultancy so uh, that went down really well so I thought actually we've we've, um, had a postponement next uh, next week so why don't I get interviewed on that subject because it was great fun and hopefully you can learn things about you know if you're doing running change programs in organizations or if you're wanting to uh, to become a better consultant so do join us for that show a big thank you again to Carlin and I wish you all well